What I'm going to talk about this morning may be considered an odd way of approaching prayer, but I don't think it is. The, the widow in Luke 18, that's a very straightforward way of approaching prayer. The nagging widow, I call her. Um, that woman who had an encounter with the unjust judge and kept pestering, the Bible says she beat him black and blue until she got her way. And the only weapon she had was persistence, stubbornness. She didn't have money. She didn't have social status. She didn't have anything. She just was stubborn. That's the only weapon she needed. But that lady, there was two things that distinguished her. Number one, she had an encounter with the judge. And number two, she knew what she wanted. Do you understand what I'm saying? So before we come to the place of prayer, this is a preparatory message. You need to have an encounter with the Lord. Because otherwise, all you're doing is walking into the prayer meeting and saying, here's my shopping list, God, God, you know. Um, and instead of which, we need to have an encounter with God and we need to know what we want in our hearts. We want God to break through massively. Um, we want to have a sense of purpose and destiny. We want to have a sense that not in the specific things that we're asking, but we just want to have a sense that I have a destiny as a son or daughter of God that I'm going to see fulfilled. Why did God put me on planet Earth? Why did God put you on planet Earth? Do you have a sense of destiny? Do you know who you are in God? Do you know your God? If you haven't settled those things, your prayers will not be all that effective. But if you have settled those things, then sometimes you almost don't even have to ask God for something. He already knows what you're asking, and he's given it to you. So I want to talk on the topic of preparing the way. And in that, I'm going to read uh, half a dozen verses from John, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 3. I'm going to set my watch here, and for once I'm going to turn it on. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region round the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the, one of cry, cry, I'm sorry, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see 
the salvation of God. Now, Luke begins his account of John's ministry by painting a very clear and accurate picture of the world into which John came. He lists seven rulers. Some, of, some are political, some are religious. He starts from the top with Caesar and works his way down. He paints a picture of a complex power structure. There's a Roman emperor, there's his representative, there's local Jewish rulers, secular rulers, religious rulers, and so on. Why does he give us all this detail and unpronounceable names? Well, he, he's putting us right into the middle of A.D. 29, and kind of like a Google map, he's zeroing in on the one place where it's all beginning to happen. The region of the Jordan River next to the wilderness. John the Baptist came into time and space and history. This is not a myth. It's not a fairy story. It's a newspaper account. That's what it is of what actually happened, where it happened, when it happened. Just like picking up a newspaper and reading the story. Here's the point. God enters human history to determine its direction. With a laser-like intensity, he comes still into this same history. He's still coming. He's not just floating up there in the clouds wondering what's happening. And every so often having panic attacks and having to pop a, a Valium or something because he's worried about how things are going out of control. No, God enters into human history. This is the God we serve. And he will zoom in on you, just like he did when so-and-so was king and so-and-so was this ruler and so-and-so was that in such-and-such such a place. So he comes right here into Teesside in 2014. In this place, he comes in, and he has an agenda. You know God always has an agenda? You go to prayer, prayer meetings this week, you think you've got an agenda. No, wait a minute. It's not your agenda he's interested in. It's his. How do you find out what his agenda is? You have an encounter with God. You prepare you, the way you prepare your hearts. I'm talking... I'm trying to make you prepare the way in your own heart and in your attitude and your expectation of faith for what, God, for what God's agenda is, for the revelation of God's agenda. Because once you've found out what His agenda is, it's easy. Faith begins where the will of God is known. So where you know what the agenda of God is, you have a place of faith and God will bring it to pass. Sometimes, just like with John, he'll meet you in the desert. Darn. But even if he meets you in the desert, he hasn't deserted you. He hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't retired. He hasn't given up. He's still here. God enters into human history. Now, if you read the Gospel of Luke, at the end of chapter 1, 
uh, John is growing up in the wilderness of Judea, kind of leaves us hanging, and then in chapter 2, it picks up the story of the birth and the early life of Jesus. And now, in these verses, beginning of chapter 3, Luke is picking up John's story from where he left off a chapter earlier. Now, what I ask was the critical moment in John's life. What was the moment that took him out of the wilderness and into the action? Because, man, it's good to be in the action, isn't it? I like to be in the action. I like to be where God is moving, where the Holy Spirit is speaking, where he's doing things. Well, the critical moment was this. It says, in the 15th year of da-da-da-da, and everybody was on their throne, and all the politicians were doing their jobs, and all this kind of some, all this kind of stuff. Suddenly it says, then the word of God came to John. Now, this is interesting because the usual Greek uh, term for word is logos. But that's not the word used here. The word used here is rhema. Now, logos is a kind of a comprehensive term. The logos of John could have referred to all the teaching that God gave him, the message God gave him, the preaching, and so on. That's what it could have refer, would have referred to. But rhema is different. Rhema refers to a specific communication. How many of you know that God still speaks? Amen. Well, some do. <clears throat> this word that came to John, it wasn't a book of doctrine. It was a communication. It was a revelation. It was a command that came from God at a specific time, in a specific place, and with a specific content. The content of the word was to proclaim a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's what it says. Now listen, all of us have a message to bring to the world around us. All of us have something that we can teach others. But it comes out of an ability to hear the rhema of God, the rhema word of God, the direct word of God to your spirit. That happens when we know God has spoken to us. That word may be something as simple as comfort, the assurance that God's with me. I know how many of you have been in a difficult time and suddenly you've just known He's here. He shows up. He's with me. That's a rhema. That's God speaking to you. You can know the love of God as a biblical concept. You can study the Bible and know all about how God loved us by sending His Son to die for us. If you're not a Christian here this morning, if you've never met and encountered Jesus, that's the best news you will ever hear. And uh, don't leave here without talking to my buddy up at the front. He'll tell you how to, um, you know, you give up what you can't keep to gain what you can't lose. That's the best deal on T's side. It's free. But you can know the love of God as a biblical concept. That's logos. But when God touches you with his love, that's rhema. Do you understand what I mean? 
And, and rhema can mean, as it did with John, something really specific. And, it, and, and the rhema was, leave the wilderness, go to the Jordan River Valley, and when you get there, start to preach repentance and forgiveness, and top it all off by baptizing people who respond. Um, a rhema can mean go somewhere. It can mean say something. It can mean do something. It can mean all of the above. Now, we don't do everything by rhema. We don't get up in the morning and wait for the Word of God to see which pair of shoes to put on. Um, most of what we do is by logos. It's by the under, principle, the understanding of the Word of God that comes through reading and studying and teaching and so on and applying that to our life in all sorts of ways. However, without the rhema word, without that ability to hear God speaking directly to us, our application in our own practical experience of what we believe will be greatly limited. Now, are you still with me? Ten minutes and five seconds. All right. <clears throat> John was a prophet. But Jesus said he wasn't just any old prophet. He was greater than all who went before him. Why? Because his coming made way for the Messiah. And in making way for the Messiah, it brought a breakthrough in which all God's people would become prophets. Revelation 19.10 says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So if you know Jesus, you are a prophet. What does it mean to be a prophet? It means someone who has the capability of hearing the rhema. All of you do. Don't ever think that, you know, some people come up at the front and they have various words from God and so on, and they're this, you, you're sitting there thinking, they're the spiritual ones. I'm sitting out there in the back. I'm just, I'll never hear from God. No, that's a lie. That's a total lie. You can hear from God perfectly well. Just think about it. If you're married... Gentlemen, sometimes your wife walks into the room and you just know. She don't have to say anything. You know it. <laughs> you know. It's like that with God, isn't it? You walk into the room and you just know what God's thinking and saying to you. That's the rhema. We, we, we should be people who can hear the voice of God when we need to. Uh, Peter, he walked to the temple hundreds of times. How many times a day did Peter go to the temple to pray? And this beggar is sitting there, this, blind, this crippled beggar at the gate of the temple. And, of course, the story is recorded in the book of Acts that one day Peter had a rhema from God. God spoke to him and said, go and grab him and tell him to get up. It's his day to get healed. But listen, Peter walked past that man hundreds of times and hadn't ever done anything for him. God, God had an appointment on one day at a particular time to heal that man. Peter could have prayed for him a hundred times and he wouldn't have been healed. But that day, that's like I said, God has an agenda. Or, put it another way, God has a problem. He thinks he's God. <laughs> I always think that's a good one. <laughs> so, 
We've got to fit into God's agenda in the place of prayer, right? So Peter could have prayed for that man and wasted a lot of time because it wasn't God's day to heal him. Instead of which, he waited until he heard. It's a very, it's much more efficient way of conducting your prayer life. Tap into God's agenda and just agree with it. And then it's done. Whatever you ask for in prayer, believe you've received it, and it'll be yours. But the presupposition to that is that you have spent enough time with God preparing your hearts that you actually can hear what his agenda is. Because the Bible doesn't say you can ask God, you, you, you can come from a place of disobedience where you're not listening to God, your heart is not prepared, you're not in a good place with God, then you can just go and ask him for any old thing. No. First of all, you know the will of God. You get to know God. You, you tenderize your heart. You, you, you say, God, not my will, but thine be done. The psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord, trust in the Lord and do good, and he will give you the desires of your heart. But it puts those phrases before he will give you the desires of your heart. First of all, you have to trust him. You have to encounter him. You have to delight in him. You have to worship him. And you have to do good. You have to be doing his will. You have to be obeying him. And if you're delighting him, trusting him, and obeying him, your heart's right. You're lined up with the will of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? And when you're lined up with the will of God, you can ask whatever you want because you'll only ask in accordance with his will. That's how it works. Whoever asks in accordance with the will of God, 1 John 5, will receive. So this is a time before you go to prayer to prepare your heart, to delight in the Lord, to examine your life. Is, is my life pleasing to God? Is there big areas of sin and disobedience and rebellion in my life? Lord, please cl clear all the garbage out so that I'm in a place where when I come to the place of prayer, I can, I can hear what your agenda is. So often we go to God and we, we, we spend all of our time announcing to him what our agenda is and then asking him to take his rubber stamp out and bless it. And then we wonder why he doesn't answer us. Well, we're stupid, aren't we? <laughs> Sorry, that was a bit rude, but there you go. So we need to live by rhema. Now, it's interesting that the Word of God came to John in the desert. wonder how long he'd waited there. Do you ever think about that? Luke 1, verse 80, it just says, he was there. Now, folks, how many of you had been there? There. <laughs> Yo, you've just been there. You don't want to be there, but you are there. You don't know how to get yourself out of there. You are just there. That's where John was. It could have been months. It could have been years. John was a young man in the prime of life. He wanted to launch out and find his destiny. But all he was doing was waiting in the desert. Maybe there's some young men here this morning that you... You, you just feel, I want to launch out on life, and I'm stalled. You're just there. You're stuck. 
And can I suggest to you, don't fight it. Just say, God, what's your agenda? Why am I stuck in this place? I want to find out. Because until you find out, you won't get out of it. Well, I wonder what John was doing there. Probably not much. I mean, what can you do in the desert anyway? Couldn't watch the World Cup. Wasn't any work to do. Wasn't anybody to talk to. Wasn't any chores. He just, I guess he just survived. All the Bible says is that as to what he was doing was that he was eating locusts and wild honey and uh, clothed himself in animal skins. That was pretty basic, wasn't it? And if you were in John's position, it was pretty pointless. Did you ever think about it? How people must have talked about him? Remember the circumstances of when John was born? Do you remember that? Zechariah goes in to the temple and the angel appears to him and tells him what's going to happen and Zechariah is a bit stupid like the rest of us and he doesn't believe it so God says all right I'll strike you dumb now I can't speak until the son is born of course they were barren it was a total miracle it was man you know his his whole birth was incredibly miraculous all these prophetic words and all the rest of it about him and people must have been saying remember that remember that boy John that guy you know all those incredible prophecies were given about him. All the circumstances of his birth. What a miracle. Whatever happened to him? You know what happened to him? I don't know what happened to him. You know what happened to him? I don't know what happened to him. Where did he go anyway? Well, I guess he just turned into a loser. Well, he's out in the desert. Desert? What's he doing there? Nothing. Is he holding down a job? No. Has he bought a car? No. Has he got married? No. What's he doing there? Well, he's eating locusts and wild honey. Oh, dear God. Save me. He, he, well, you know, he, that kid, he had such great promise, but I guess he's just a failure. That's what people must have been saying about it. There's only one advantage to being in the desert, and you might find the same. There's no one to talk to but God. There's no one to fellowship with but God. There's no one to learn from but God. There's no one to meet but God. In the place of apparent failure and meaninglessness, God was preparing a man for a world-changing task. That's what he was doing. He will take as long as he needs to to prepare a man or a woman for the destiny he's appointed them to. God has a habit of meeting people in the desert. That's where he prepared Israel to enter the promised land. It's where he hid David when Saul was running after him. It's where he kept Elijah in the days of famine. It's a great place for preparation, but the preparation has a point, and that's when he brings you out. And he always brings you out. He takes you in to bring you out. Let God do what he has to do in your personal desert so that he can bring you out when you're ready to take your place. And if you feel in a desert place this morning, can I just encourage you to embrace it? And I'll only say it for Elaine and me, 
we have been in numerous deserts. I'm not sort of, you know, up on the stage. Actually, I need all the height I get. I need, I need all the height I can get. Well, I better go up another rank, you know. I'm not sort of up here saying, I am the great spiritual man that floats along like this and all you losers out there in the desert. <laughs> no, I've been in more deserts than you have in all probability. Just embrace it. Just say, God, I hate this. This is garbage. But Lord, somehow you have me here. And, and just help me in it. Can I meet you in it? Better get down so I can get to my next point. So that when you come to the place of prayer, you're, you've allowed God to deal with you. Otherwise, you know what will happen is all your prayers will be, get me out of this desert, get me out of this desert, get me out of this desert. God, I can't stand it anymore. And God will pay no, not one bit of attention to you. Let God deal with you in the desert. Now, the word of God that came to John was to proclaim a baptism for, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Of course, he wasn't able to deliver the product. He was only the one who prepared the way. Only Jesus was going to be able to bring that forgiveness. But John was exhorting people, get ready. Get ready. Prophetic voices in the church will always tell us to get ready. That's why we need, then they can be a, a, a pain in the backside sometimes, these prophetic voices. <laughs> but we need them. Otherwise, we'll never get ready for what God wants to do. God, do you know something? God is always about to do something. That's exciting when you go into a week of prayer. God is always about to do something. We just need to get our lives in order so we can be part of it, right? If we believe God is going to do great things in our community, in our families, in our community, in our nation, as a response to intercession, our rep response should be, get ready. What do I have to do, God, to get ready for this? And what we do is what John preached about, turn to God. Turn back to God if you need to. God's not going to turn to you. You need to turn to Him. So get ready. Now, the next part in it, I think, is really interesting, and it's very simple. He, he, uh, he declares who He is. He says, I'm the voice of one crying in the desert. Prepare the way of the Lord. And I just want to make a point to you this morning. <clears throat> And that is this. People today are in an identity crisis. We just finished this young men's leadership events, the fifth one I've done. I think they just keep getting better. And five-year guys were, were there and participated, and uh, some shared in leadership in it. But, and I get them all to write assignments. Everybody has, nobody can come unless they write an assignment. Somebody who shall remain nameless did not come with his assignment, so he was given a piece of paper and a pen, and he was not allowed to leave the building until he'd written it. And God bless him, he did. Now, when you read these assignments, you find out a lot of these young men are struggling with issues of identity. Who am I? 
What's my purpose here? And there's a lot of uh, difficulty that arises out of that. Some people think they're, you know, the best thing since sliced bread. Other people are the opposite. They, they just think I'm a victim. It always amazes me that <clears throat> there are people who reject the idea of, of a creator God, and they come to the conclusion that we're just a random collection of atoms or molecules. And yet they think that they are a personal collection of molecules smart enough to come to a definitive determination that a creator of God does not exist. I can't figure the logic of that out. But John had no problem in defining his identity. Why? Because he defined his identity by the Word of God. Who are you? In answer to the question, who are you, he quoted Scripture. He knew who he was because God had told him he'd prepared his heart in that place. You know what? The Bible has some wonderful things to say about our identity. It says you're a son of God. It says you're a daughter of God. It says that you once were far off have now been brought near. It says you're more than a conqueror. It says you're an overcomer. It says that you're accepted in the beloved. It says so many things if you read it. Define your identity by this book, my brothers and sisters. Don't allow the world to put an identity upon you. You're, you know, an asylum seeker. You're somebody that, you know, uh, we don't really want in this country. That's a lie in the kingdom of God. You're a son of God. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Behave like it. Behave like kings and priests. You know, you, like I'm, I'm a nobody in myself. I'm not tall, dark, and, well, I might be a little handsome, but I'm probably not. <laughs> but you know, when I came to Christ, I found out I was a son of the living God. That's who I am. And that's all I need to know. Define your identity by the Word of God. Now, then, and I'm coming down to a conclusion uh, shortly, <laughs> not immediately, but I'm getting there. The plane is beginning its final descent. So the question remains, how do we do all this? How do we prepare the way for God to come in our heart? How do we want get into a place when we walk into the prayer meetings that we're lined up with God and His will and we know His agenda? Well, Isaiah, Isaiah gives the answer. Uh, and John's quoting Isaiah here, and if we look elsewhere in Isaiah, he says this. He says, build up, build up, prepare the way. Isaiah 57. And uh, he tells us, God is going to come to a people who are lowly and contrite in spirit. To those people, he's going to bring healing and restoration and peace. Now, I, let me suggest to you that all of us came here this morning on a physical road, a highway, a pavement, whatever. That's how we came. But God doesn't come to us on a physical highway. The highway 
that clears the way for his coming is a purified heart. The highway that clears the way for his coming is a purified heart. We want God to hear our intercession and change our lives, our families, our communities, our nation, but we have to clear the road for him to come. And that is by purifying our heart. The found, our coming to God, when we come to God in prayer, it's built on two foundations. Number one is our need. Number two is His mercy. And what is the goal of God? It says here, John knew what it, what it was. The goal of God is every mountain and hill shall be made low and every valley shall be filled up. So he wants to bring low the mountains and raise up the valleys. Mountains in the Bible represent high places of pride and dependence and rebellion and obstacles to the will of God. When we prepare our hearts, God brings them, those mountains down, right? He reduces them. He takes them away. The valleys are the places of unbelief, the low places where we can't trust God for anything. And God can do nothing with an unbelieving person. So he wants to raise the valleys up and fill us with faith and anticipation. So while we're purifying our hearts now, as we prepare ourselves to inter intercession, God does two things that we can't do. What we can do is cry out to God for a purified heart and declare our willingness to repent, to be right with Him, to open our hearts to brothers and sisters in accountability. That's so important. I sp I'm going to speak. This is a digression. It's dangerous to take a digression, especially when I announced the meeting was coming to an end, or at least the message was. But I'm going to take it anyway. Particularly for men, accountability is so important. You have to, we have to live open lives before one another. N nothing can be hidden. I mean, I don't mean with everybody, but you have to have some other men who you are accountable to that can speak into your life, that can say, you know, I see this issue in your life. If I want a purified heart, I'm going to need my brother to come and help me with it. It's true. That's how it works, isn't it? It's n otherwise, we're just deceiving ourselves. But here's what I'm trying to say, is that when we're now purifying our heart and asking God to deal with us and allowing others to speak into our lives, then that's our part. But while we're doing that, God is doing two things. He's slicing off the mountaintops. What's that? hill near here, strawberry topping or something. Anyway, what it is. You keep seeing pictures of it. Matter of fact, Elaine and I have a wonderful 94-year-old friend up in Durham, and uh, he told me a story a few months ago. This is digression number two. <clears throat> and one of his lifelong desires was to go up in a little plane and, uh, and fly around the area. And he took off uh, and there must be an airport or airstrip near here that he took off from, and just a little plane. And they went up, and when they got somewhere, the pilot said, now you can steer the plane. And he had a, a little bit of a panic attack, but the pilot says, really simple, just take a hold of these controls. 
And he said, where do I steer? And he said, well, see that hill over there? That must have been Granberry Hill or Strawberry Topping or whatever it is. And, and he said, just steer toward that, right? And he says, if you start going higher than it, come down. So you're steering toward the top of it. If you start going lower, steer up and just head straight toward it. And so he flew the plane all the way. And then when they got to that place, the pilot then took over and landed it and did the last little bit. What's the message of that? I thought that's an amazing picture. You know, keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't look up. Don't look down. Don't look this way. Don't look that way. Just keep your focus on him. And you may think, I'm terrified. I don't know how to drive this plane. But God will get you to the right place if you do that. And, and in a way, that's what purifying our heart this morning is about. It's keeping your eyes and focus on Jesus. You know, don't allow the plane to get blown off course one way or the other. It's so simple. It's just look where you're going. Focus on him. And when, when you do that, God's part is to remove the mountains and fill up your faith. It's an incredible thing. Absolutely amazing what God does. He wants to remove every obstacle in the way of the fulfillment of his plans. As Christians, sometimes we think of ourselves as a helpless minority. But the last book of the Bible says we're conquerors. We're more than conquerors. That's our identity in the Word of God. And uh, uh, the, in the book of Revelation, which I spent a lot of time in the last few years, uh, it pictures a second exodus. This time, the exodus is not out of Egypt into Israel. It's out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. The sea of evil is parting every day across the face of this earth. And people are being brought out to freedom. And we're witnesses of it. It's happening right here. It's, it's been happening in this church. The sea is parting. People are coming out of bondage, out of darkness, and into the light. And a whole lot more are going to come. And into the middle of this, John's invitation is there. Prepare your heart. Are you going to prepare your heart this morning to be part of this? We go to intercession. Are you going to prepare your heart to be part of what God wants, you, wants to do here? The greatest obstacle is not some corrupt government. I just looked at the Internet and got depressing news that a government I don't like has been reelected in the part of Canada that I come from, and that was discouraging for various reasons. But I got to get over that because God is king over the whole shebang. It sounds like a Farsi word, but it probably isn't. Shebang. God's king over the whole lot of it. The greatest obstacle is not corrupt politicians or atheists who are running the educational system or the ungodly people that you work with or that go to school with or live next to. No. The greatest obstacle is the stubbornness and unrepentance of your heart and mine. That's the only thing that will stop God. And so the answer is, prepare your heart. Get ready. Because when a praying people who are purified and ready to go into action and submit to God's agenda, 
get going, then nothing but nothing but nothing can stop them. John entered history as a man with a call, a man who could hear God speak to him, a man who obeyed what God told him to do. He was in the right time, at the right place, for God to use him because he had the right heart. He was willing to do outrageous things, to tell religious people they were sinners who had to jump into a river in front of hundreds of people to prove their willingness to change. And if they didn't want to, he called them a brood of snakes. He knew that men and women had to turn to God, not that God had to turn to them. He knew that the biggest event of history was about to happen, and he told people to do whatever they had to get ready for it so they didn't miss out. And that was it. And this is the very last thing I want to say. But think about it. By the time all the action was getting into motion, let alone the resurrection and Pentecost, John was gone. He was with the Lord. After all of that, he missed out. Why? He was in this world to serve another, to serve God, not to promote his own ministry or himself or his own interests. He was secure in his identity. He knew the limits God had put around him. He devoted himself to serving God within the boundaries of that call. And that's the same place you and I will find our peace in God. Do what God has called you to do. Don't try to be somebody that you aren't. The curse of comparison is a terrible thing in the world. You look at somebody else and wish you were like them in some way. There's no place for it in the body of Christ. You are everything that God wants you to be when you line yourself up with God and His will, and you don't need to want to be anybody else. Don't try to be somebody you aren't, but don't settle for anything less than everything God has intended and destined for you. God has prepared a way for us. Today we need to ask Him to take a hold of our hearts as we come to the place of prayer to level those mountains of pride that exist even within ourselves, to raise those valleys of unbelief in order that by faith we can step out into whatever part of the plan of God is before us and see those rivers part in front of us. All of us are called to prepare the way. All of us, not just one or two, are called to prepare the way for the king. There is no higher call, and it is on the lives of every one of you here today. Well, let's stand up. And maybe Sean and the other musicians or whoever can come up to the front. I want to invite you to respond to God this morning. It's really up to you how you do it. If you want to, you can come down to the front. You can kneel. You don't have to have somebody to pray with you, but if you want to, there'll be 